two truths that we sang about how Christ has been our cornerstone and also how we are to be awake because Christ is risen. Um, the word of the season for me has been providence. People have been asking me, like, hey, how is this happening? Or, like, how did you get to do this? And I, I continually find myself saying, providence. It was providential. Like, it was nothing that I've planned for. It was nothing that I, um, I could have conjured up. Um, and I just find myself in, in walking through the providence of God. And one of those providences is time. So I'll try to be as, um, as timely and faithful to the time, to, um, to the end time we have for our time together. So if I feel like, if you feel like I'm rushing through um, and you need me to slow down, just say, slow down. But um, with that being said, I want us to turn our attention to God's word. In Exodus chapter 34, very familiar passage, we had a prayer on Friday and um, even kind of came out and in terms of what this passage says. But we'll get into that here in a minute. I will read from God's word. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And really, this is where I want us to focus six and seven, but I know it's up there until nine, so we'll go ahead and read it in this context. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we gather before you this evening as those who have found favor in your sight, O oh Lord. And that favor was displayed by Christ bleeding on our behalf, taking on our sin and shame and guilt, dying, getting buried, and defeating death and giving us new life. So, Father, thank you for this favor that you've bestowed upon us undeservingly. Lord, as we look at your word continue to be in our midst as you have been thus far lord convict us of sin turn us by the power of your spirit so that we not only inherit your kingdom but become an inheritance to your son who is our king we give you this time together, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, so that we may behold the wondrous things that are in your word. We ask you in these things, in Jesus' name, amen. So the text, before we get into the text, I kind of want us to give us a context, and you guys know this. This context of this chapter 34 comes in light of what Moses asks God in chapter 33, he asked God to show himself to him. Like, I want to see your glory, God. Right? And as we think of ourselves as Christians and as believers, and even as a gathering of believers as a church, what do we want to be? That's really what I started thinking about in terms of preparing for this message or picking this this verse if you 
if you will, um, what exactly do we want to be as a church, as believers? What do we want to have? And if you remember two weeks ago, we said we want to have a, the heart of Christ that is gentle and lowly, who has all the authority yet, who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We want to be those who, who has that same heart. And with that thought and that theme and that direction where the Lord has me thinking, we want to be a place where the glory of God can be manifest, not only among us, but also, also through us. After all, aren't we the lights of this world and the salt of this world? So, chapter 33, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And in chapter 34, he responds to him. And notice how his glory and his name, his nature and his character and his person, all of that is in his name. Because our text says, then, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. What does he proclaim? His name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. Because who he is, is consistent with his nature, his character, his person, his doctrine, what he teaches about himself, and also his standard of living. And another interesting fact, and I mentioned it to, uh, to those who are in prayer meeting, um, one of the things that I found out that was interesting is, Notice how God reveals the glo His glory to, to Moses. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him. He does it in passing, right? So like the, the Lord doesn't just remain and stay there. He does it in passing. And his proclamation of who he is and his glory is seen in, the, in view of like in, in transit almost, which indicates that there's this fixed view of His glory is yet to come. We don't, we don't see His glory in its fullness just yet, and we don't get to fix ourselves to that vision just yet, what theologians call the beatific vision, right? Seeing God for who He really is and just behold Him forever and ever, that is yet to come. And yet we gather together and we have fellowship. We break bread and then we sing together and we hear from God's word and then we edify each other. And that's kind of what we see a glimpse of. If you are asking why you like coming to church as a believer, why is there such a desire for you to come and be among fellow believers? <laughs> because that, that desire has been instilled in all of us to come be with fellow believers and actually like kind of behold His glory because when we're together as His people and He among us, we get a glimpse of what heaven would look like. Where that glory is fully manifest and then, and then we finish our time together and we'll go about our business and then we'll go to work tomorrow or school, whatever our business is. And then we, there's this yearning until we meet again. We want to be that place as a church, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But as an introduction, I also want to say, whenever we go through these seven attributes that God reveals himself in, his attributes cannot be divided. It's not these attributes that we're going to see are not what, what sum up God. So God is not part love and kindness, part mercy, part grace, and then you put those, two, those things together. They can, it's undivided. All of it is all the same. So I just want us to kind of get that at, at the front end of it. Now, if Moses saw this in the Old Covenant, right, and we are in the New Covenant, 
the covenant given to us by God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Who else has revealed himself? So what I intend to do, as Hebrews 1, 3 to 4 say, talking about the Lord Jesus, who is the radiance of his glory, of the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleanse, the cleansing of for sins, sat down at the right hand of Jesus, uh, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So in light of this, if we have this more excellent unveiled view of God's glory through Christ, who is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature, if we have that, and we are to be conformed into His image, what I want to show us and what I want to point us to is three considerations. Three considerations that are going to be our outline for, for this afternoon is one, how Christ himself displays these natures or this nature or these attributes. Second, how we are to be conformed by this into this personally, individually, and also how as a church we are to reflect this image into which we are being conformed, right? So when you're hearing each go, us going through each one of these attributes, God reveals about himself. God literally spells out who he is, right? And the reason why the, the sermon is titled God Spell or Gospel is because Literally, God is spelling out who He is. The Lord, the Lord. Compassionate or merciful, gracious. Literally, He's spelling out who He is to us. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I, or maybe, a, was it a month ago? I went to Portland. I had, a, I had to present a, a, a workshop on the gospel and the clarity of it and redefining the gospel. So I started looking up where the word gospel came from. And everybody knows what evangelion means in Greek, right? But did you know, did you know where the word gospel came from in English? How do we go from evangelion to gospel in English? That's a huge leap, right? I mean, I can get evangelion and evangelical, at least that. So, um, so the word gospel came from an old English word, which is God's spell, right? I was, I was mind blown just like you are too, which you're not. It's just a nerd in me. I like word studies. I, I, get, I, I get in that rabbit hole and I can get lost. So pardon me as I go and show you a little bit of my geeky side, if you have not seen it yet. But it's God's spell. And you put that together over time, you know how words kind of got shorter and shorter and shorter and that's that's how we got the word gospel because it's whatever god spells about himself it's the it's the news the spelling of who god is is what the message of the gospel is anyways so hence um i kept that title this is god spelling himself to us so as we see what god spills spells out about himself these are the three things that we need to be thinking as. How has Christ actually displayed this nature? How, are, how am I supposed to be conformed into this image? This is the same thing. We can, we can stay there. Yeah. You're not missing anything. And then as a church, how can we actually reflect this image to the world at large and to our fellow believers? So the first attribute, if you will, is God's compassion. See, one of the things that I, and um, <laughs> this is full confession, one of the things that I miss about having um, an actual Bible and I'm trying to 
I usually have my Bible here, and then I would have the text here so I can refer back to it, and then I have my sermon notes in my in my on my iPad. No, now I'm trying to go all it. Um, iPad. I have to jump between two apps to go to the Bible and into my sermon notes. But anyways, bear with me. First one that we see is God's compassion, right? He reveals himself and says that the Lord, the Lord, the first thing that he says about himself is he is compassionate or he is merciful. If you're reading it in in ESV, it would say merciful, right? We see God's compassion and God's mercy. What exactly is that? Mercy is not just, I mean, we have a definition of mercy, but what, what the people would have heard in, 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 in the wilderness is God's sympathetic consciousness of the distress of mankind. That's what compassion is, right? When you have compassion on somebody, you're, you have sympathy towards their condition. When God sees his creation, his the people that he made in his likeness and his image, is he's conscious about your their distress. He's sympathetic to that. And that's what it means to be compassionate. When God is compassionate, he sympathizes, he's conscious of the distress of mankind who remain under the harsh domain and the reality of sin. Like the compassion, that tender compassion like a father would have to his children. I would even go farther and maybe the, the mother's compassion is probably more tender than, than, than the father. Trust me, I know. <laughs> and I'm sure you know because most of us, if not all of us, had mothers or have mothers at one point, right? And that tender compassion that they feel, the sympathetic consciousness of the distress in which you go by. When you are under distress, God is merciful. God is compassionate. And this is why the writer of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have someone that, that kind of just like, ah, oh, I can't identify with that, you know, but I mean, I guess I can kind of see it. No, he doesn't just empathize with that without weakness. He sympathizes with it. But one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. This is talking about Jesus. So God's compassionate nature and his attribute has been displayed by the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest. Secondly, we see God's grace, where he says not only he's compassionate or merciful, but he's also gracious. And that grace is actually something that we, we know the definition. If I went around and I asked everybody what grace means, you would tell me what it means, right? It's unmerited favor. It's that undeserved favor that has been bestowed upon mankind without any inherent or any precondition. God displays His grace to save through Christ Jesus. Hence, we have Titus saying, as well, Paul telling telling us in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared. How? Where? Bringing, all, bringing salvation to all men. How did that appear? Jesus was born. Jesus lived a sinless life, keeping all the law, so that what we receive is not judgment and condemnation, but it's grace. And again, to think through these things, how much more compassionate should we be? How should I be, as, as, we're, as we're hearing this, in light of what I have up there, think of the compassion of God and then say, how am I being conformed by God's compassion to be compassionate? 
by God's mercy to being more merciful? How am I being conformed by not only that Jesus displays it, yes, theologically correct. We get it, Manny. We've heard this. I grew up in church. I come to church every week and you, everybody preaches about this. But the challenge is, how am I being conformed by his compassionate nature, by his mercy to be more merciful? And how am I showing that? How are we as a church to display that? That's our challenge, right? That's, 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 and I'm going to keep coming back to it every time we go through each one of these attributes. How am I being confronted by God's grace and His graciousness? And how am I being conformed to being more gracious? Showing grace, if, if, show, if God showing me grace means He gave me unmerited favor, undeserved favor, how am I actually displaying that by showing undeserved favor to those who don't deserve it, right? That's why it's called undeserved. If I were to write that in a paper, I'd probably get an F because that's, I can't define undeserved favor by those who don't deserve it, right? This deserve the deserve is there, no? Thirdly, God's patience, his forbearance, some translation would have it. The reason I put forbearance is for those of us that have student loans, we know what forbearance means. Or for those of us that are, have credit cards and whatever, there's a forbearance, right? That word patience literally means long-suffering. The ability to suffer for a long time. As opposed to the ability to, to suffer for a short time. Those people we call short-tempered. Or long-tempered is actually another literal translation. God is long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered. Can you imagine if God was short-tempered? In light of who we are, in light of who humanity is, in light of all our sin and our transgressions. But this patient nature, this nature of long-suffering, because of that's who He is by nature, and that's the attribute He displays towards us, He doesn't smite mankind at every point of rebellion. I mean, He has. Ask Ananias and Sapphira, by the way. You guys know that story? They lied to the Holy Spirit and on the spot, dropped dead. They lied about something minuscule even, right? You might even think that it's something, but it was their money anyways. Like they went and sold their land and they sold it for five grand and they said, I'm kind of filling in the blank here. They said they sold it for four, four and a half and tried to pocket the 500. I mean, to make a point, Ananias gets smitten right there, dies. And his wife comes and same thing happened. Can you imagine if God dealt with every single one of us that way? Praise God, he doesn't because the Lord, the Lord, he is compassionate. He sympathizes with our nature. He understands the nature and is gracious, so he gives the unmerited favor. Remember, I said these, these attributes are not divided. You can't divide the compassion from, from his mercy. You can't divide the mercy from, from his patience. His patience is actually built on his graciousness, and his graciousness is because of his mercy. So you can't divide it. It's all tied together. It's really one, and we only have one God. There's no division among him. So Paul can write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 16, uh, in verse 16, Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in, in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate. Who is demonstrating all his patience? Christ Jesus demonstrates all his patience, 
all his long suffering, all this long temperedness, if you will, as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. You see how Christ actually personifies that long suffering nature of God? One, one commentator writes it like this, God's patience is the, res the relenting of his just wrath so that mankind can be saved. It's the relenting of his just wrath so that mankind can be saved. That's his patience. How are we being conformed into this image, how are we being conformed by this into this? And how much more should we be patient and suffer long with one another and even with those that are undeserving because of His grace? Fourthly, it's we see God's covenantal love. It says steadfast love, word has said in, in Hebrew. It's that love that flows out of his own essence, right? It's not love that, that is kind of like make you feel warm in your belly. It's the love that flows out of his own essence is unchanging affection towards mankind. Keyword being unchanging affection towards mankind. That's bound by a promise he made. So that affection towards mankind is bound by his own promise. That's why it says steadfast love. It's that covenantal love. God makes a covenant with us through Christ. And God makes a covenant with Abraham to Israel. And this is the steadfast love that he's telling Moses. But how much greater covenant we have, Paul says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this new covenant that has been written in our hearts, not by ink, but by the Spirit Himself. That's that kind of that change of affection towards mankind that is bound by His promise that He's made a commitment-filled love, not like a, a love that kind of just, it's a trade-off, right? Sometimes that's what we, what we do with our love. You do something for me, I do something for you. You withhold something from me, I withhold something from you. But the love God has, the steadfast love, is a commitment-filled love to see its fruition at all costs. That commitment, that, that, that covenant has to come to fruition at all costs. And what did it cost the Father to see it come to fruition? cost him the son that love that was bestowed right everybody knows this because the first first verse you probably learned in Sunday school if you went to Sunday school or even if you didn't know anything about God and somebody tried to evangelize you I'm already seeing it John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave an on, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? Am I right in assuming that? Like I'd probably get 100% if I say that's the first one you at least memorized as a Christian? John 3.16? That love, that caused him to give his only begotten son. He didn't just give him just to give him. This covenantal love was displayed in Christ. That's the kind of love that we ought to have towards Him. That's the kind of love that needs to convert us and conform us. And also, that's the kind of love that we want to see in our church and our midst. Not like, if you don't show up, if you don't do this, and if you... Not that kind of love. By all costs, a commitment-filled love to see the fruition of God's love at all costs. And the next one is actually tied to that same verse where he says he's abounding in this kind of love. 
and his steadfast love and truth. Some, some translations would have it truth. Some translations would have it faithfulness. Truth is faithfulness. <laughs> if you were to ask me. So either way can go. It's just the absolute dependability flowing out of God's, again, I'm going to give you a theological word, immutability, which means unchanging nature. So God's trustworthiness that, that has been proven throughout generations. God is trustworthy. Not just today in 2023, August 27. Not just in our lifetime even, no matter how old we are. Not even in our parents' lifetime. Since the beginning of time, God has been faithful. And He has been proving His truthfulness, His faithfulness throughout history because He is truth. And who do we know that is truth? Who said that I am the truth, Jesus himself. And this is, there's this firm foundation of truth that will not be shaken by anything. And God doesn't lie. That's one of the things that God can't do. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 to 20. When the writer of Hebrews says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise to the unchangeableness, which is that immutability, of His purpose, guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who we have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed and one which enters within the veil, as we were singing, where Forerunner has entered for us. Who is that forerunner he's talking about? Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But you see his nature of unchangeability. You see how God promises on his own because there's no one else. Who is God going to swear by? I mean, we can swear by God, which I don't encourage us to do. Just let your yeses be yeses and noes your noes. There's this um, new trend where everybody's like, uh, to affirm a truth, it's like, oh God, I'm like, oh, I'm going to punch you in the face. But I have to be merciful, right? I have to be long-suffering. I have to be gracious even when they do, don't deserve it. We were out yesterday for some photo shoot for Trinity and like there was a couple of teenagers walking like walking and a couple of them was there and then one guy was riding i don't know if you saw them where and then these guys were saying a whole bunch of things like, oh god oh god i'm like dude like if, I, if you don't stop like felt righteous anger a little bit but i don't know if that was or not so i relented praise god but anyways god didn't i digress god doesn't swear by anybody higher because he cannot lie. And his purpose is unchangeable. And the, and the hope we have in Christ is unchangeable. And he cannot lie that you have eternal life. And he has given that to us. And we see that in, our, in his nature. So we can trust when Paul says in Philippians, Hey, he who began a good work in you will see it through we can trust him because he's truthful and he's faithful is that the kind of faithfulness we have or should it be the kind of 
faithfulness, we, by which we are conformed by, by God's faithfulness, we're conformed into being faithful, right? We're not working this faithfulness or this mercifulness or this graciousness or this long-suffering or this patience in and of ourselves. It's God's patience that makes us more patient. It's God's faithfulness that makes us faithful because we have received it with unveiled face and we, we behold the Lord Jesus having entered for us as a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. What am I on, number five? No, number six, God's forgiveness. We know this concept of forgiveness very well. It's the concept of debt removal. Right? For those of us that have uh, student loans, we, we got one struck down a couple of months ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, right? We thought we were going to have some debt removed for us. Psych, they said. <laughs> thought it was. Nope. Pay your debt. But this is, this is the same concept, right? That, that God's forgiveness of sin and iniquity is that he, we have incurred a debt called sin and iniquity and transgression. Some of it is by nature, just by the sheer nature of being born in the likeness of Adam. And because we have that sin nature, guess what we do? We don't, by the way, we don't sin because it happens to us. We sin because we're sinners. It's not nature. So we continue to, to rack up this debt, and God comes and He forgives that debt. That, that debt is removed. This removal of this unbearable burden that we talked about two weeks ago, where the Lord Jesus says, Come to me who you are weary and heavy laden, which is heavy burden. There's a burden of sin. You feel it. You can't carry it no more. I mean, people out here, by the way, are hurting. Life is real. You know this. Your life is real. My life is too. We deal with so much. And just because I'm standing up here and you're sitting down here, and if we're assuming that we're not affected by that and those things don't affect us and we're not burdened by it. We're lying and then <laughs> adding even more burden to ourselves, really. Because lying is a sin too, right? Either we're lying to ourselves or we're lying for, to one another. But life is really real. I gave a ride to a, a lady last night who was well into her 50s and she, as soon as she got in there, my small talk, so much started crying burden after burden after burden I don't know what to do she says a great opportunity for the gospel and I said I can't help you I can only point you to the one who can help you And then right after I dropped her off, I picked up another young lady who's coming back from a funeral of a 19-year-old who got shot and died and taken all that and processing it. So life is happening to all of us. Maybe not as drastic as like your, <laughs> the, the one lady was saying that my family wants nothing to do with me. And this one is like, I can't process how death can happen to someone that's young as me so suddenly. And I can't process that. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not what you're going through. But we are all burdened. And God removes this unbearable burden because of sin. Why is this happening? Because there's sin in the world. Because we live in a broken world. And we broken people break people. Anything we touch is marred by sin. But God forgives that. He grants this debt removal program a lifting of this unbearable burden, and He provides a payment for this debt incurred. And that payment, and the one who lifts our burden, 
as the Lord Jesus Christ who says, come. And this forgiveness also includes this enduring, by the way, if, you, if you've ever paid somebody else's debt, it's not pleasant for the one that's paying the debt, you know, especially if you didn't incur it. Right? It hurts my pocketbook a little bit if I was to pay somebody else's debt, like you owe somebody a hundred bucks, and I, I say, you know what, I got you, I'm going to pay for it. Even if I have thousands and millions of dollars, which I don't, so don't ask me to pay for your debt, no. <laughs> but uh, but it, there's actually something, there's, there's, it's an unpleasant outcome for the one who's paying that debt. But God does so. He endures the unpleasant outcome of debt. He endures the unpleasant outcome of guilt. He endures the unpleasant outcome of crime and offense and rebellion for the sake of mankind so that he can wipe our slate clean. And what is and who is the one who endured this unpleasant outcome? If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine his agony in the garden of Gethsemane, where he started sweating blood. It's an unpleasant outcome. He knew what was waiting for him. He believed Isaiah when he wrote about him. He said it pleased, it pleased him to crush him. He was getting ready to be crushed. He was about to be abandoned to where he was going to be hanging on the cross and then crying out, Father, Father, why, you, why have you forsaken me? He was about to be forsaken. He was about to be in a place that was so unpleasant. But he goes to that length to forgive us, to grant this debt removal. And we ought to be conformed into that image by that image that I just try to paint for you. And we ought to be the place as a church or the people as a church whereby we can actually feel and sense this kind of forgiveness. You have to be a place where there are people who, who are beacons of that kind of forgiveness. So that people can come and experience that forgiveness even. And those six attributes may be more on the positive side. And if we were to just stop there, you know, God is gracious. God is merciful. He's, he's compassionate. He's gracious. He's patient, right? He loves people covenantally. He's faithful, you know? And he forgives others. Man, that's it. It almost would give us a license to sin. And people can say, you know, God is loving. You know, don't judge me. God will forgive me. It's okay. I don't deserve it, but, you know, I'll get it anyways. We can presume on, on those attributes, right? It's as if God knows who we are, not, not as if he does know who we are. And so he doesn't want to just let us just bask in, that, in those attributes, but he finishes off by saying, I am just. And that's the last thing we see is God's justice. Verse 7, God says, He is abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and the last, but, so there's a shift there, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. God is just. God's justice is also spelled out for us here. And God's justice simply means the infliction of punishment demanding the obligated responsibility to be imposed. It's God's, God upholding the charge in the courtroom, so to speak, 
The charge is sin, and I uphold this charge. God will punish for crimes committed. But praise God, who does he punish for crimes the man you and I commit and have committed? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. By the way, that he where he's referring to is, is Jesus. He made Jesus who knew no sin. He didn't commit any of those crimes. And he takes all of the sin of mankind, he puts them on it to the point where Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin even. This is the doctrine of imputation. Again, another fancy theological word. He imputes our sin and our crimes. He puts it on him and he punishes him for it. He receives the wrath. And then he takes his righteousness and he imputes it on us. He clothes us in his righteousness. So God's justice is born by Jesus. It's displayed upon Jesus on the cross. The worst kind of execution that the world then knew. Because God's justice cannot be thwarted. We cannot escape God's justice. Now, some of us might even be experiencing a little bit of that because God is just and God does discipline His children. Those of us that are His, we feel the discipline of God. If we presume in those six areas, God will discipline us. doesn't just overlook our little sin because we, we've already established those six attributes and we presume on that. God's justice is real. God's intentional execution and oversight, here's one of the things that fascinated me about this as well, is not only God would, would, would be executing this, that he, he has direct oversight on how those punishments are distributed. God is in charge of that for rebellion. And if we're going to be believers who seek to be like Jesus Christ, to, to, to hear God going past Moses in passing, and then seeing that glory going past him, this is what they're hearing audibly, by the way, and they're seeing this. And this is what we see written in His Word. This is how God reveals His glory. This is how God spells Himself out to Moses and to us. And if we want to remain in His glory, if we want to bask in it, bask in this. This is His glory. God, who is merciful gracious, patient, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquities. And He is just. That's where we want to remain. We want to see that in Christ. And we want to be conformed into the image of Christ. And we want to be the, the people who show Christ, that Christ, the way that we see Him, the way that Moses saw Him, even better though. Because we turn to Him and, and the veil is removed. And we can actually behold Him for who He is. We want to, we want to live in that. Don't you want to live in that? I, I really want to be there. And sometimes we feel it when we're alone in our room, praying and reading His Word. And we, we, we're like, we're so kind of 
like our, our, our knowledge of him, and we, we sense and we feel it, and we, we, we grow, our affections are inclined towards him. And then we're like, we don't want to leave here. I just want to stay here. Kind of like what Peter and, and John did when they saw the, the Lord Jesus Mount of Transfiguration. They're like, hey, we've seen it. This is, this is where we want to live. Let's camp out here and live forever, man. Like, what else? It's there. Like, what else? What better thing? What better job? What better bank account? What better car? What better fill in the blank? Can be more than seeing Jesus Christ and beholding His glory. And as you behold Him, He transformed you into looking more and more like Him. That's what we want to be. That's the heart. That's really the glory that I want us to, to be challenged by and to behold and to, to seek after. And be like Moses, show me your glory. Because these things are not just the things that, are, that God spells out about himself are not just principles. They are personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the only one that could? So put your trust in him and live in light of his revelation. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy and the forgiveness and your steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you for your justice, even. Father, show us who you are. Cause us to remain in this glory. Cause us to seek this glory as you transform us from one level of glory to another level of glory. As we behold your Son, Jesus Christ. As we see him crucified, resurrected, ascended on high, mediating between us and you. Lord, may your spirit convict us, point us to him, reveal him to us much, much clearer than what we see him. May your spirit continue to transform us into his image. And may your spirit work among us so that we may be a church that displays this glory and this glory alone that you spelled out for us in your word. We ask you for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have been, I've lied, so forgive me, 17 minutes past five, um, but be gracious. Right. Here's, the, here's the application point for the sermon. <laughs> um, so officially, we are done, but unofficially, we can remain here um, even after... <laughs>